Hello, BTK listeners. This is Patrick Georgeoff. Welcome back to our Clinical Challenges in Surgery series. Clinical challenges in surgery are interesting and instructive cases that have maximal educational impact. Soon, you'll be hearing clinical challenges from our new specialty teams. We received an impressive number of high-quality applications and are thrilled to welcome the following teams to Behind the Knife. Representing Surgical Oncology, this group from the University of Texas Southwestern and MD Anderson. Bariatric Surgery from the University of Nebraska. Pediatric Surgery from Indiana University. Hepatobiliary Surgery from Brooke Army Medical Center and William Beaumont Army Medical Center. Minimally Invasive Surgery from the University of Washington in Seattle. Vascular Surgery from the University of Michigan. Endocrine Surgery from UCLA. Emergency General Surgery from University of Toronto. Thoracic Surgery from Swedish Medical Center in Seattle. Critical Care from the University of Texas Southwestern and Texas Tech. Breast Surgery from the University of California, San Francisco. Hernia Surgery from Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland. Palliative Care from Harvard, Hopkins, and Mission Health in Asheville, North Carolina. Transplant Surgery from the University of North Carolina. We have two colorectal teams, the first from Leahy Clinic and Tufts Medical Center, and the second from the University of Montreal. We have two trauma teams, the first from Johns Hopkins and Baltimore Sinai, and the second from the University of Miami. And finally, we have two education teams, the first from Northwestern and the second from Cleveland Clinic. As you can see, there's definitely a lot to look forward to. All right, let's get on with our clinical challenge. This episode is brought to you by Panacea Financial, a digital bank that's making banking better for doctors because it was built by doctors. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Matt Martin, Director of Trauma Research at Scripps Mercy Hospital in San Diego and Professor of Surgery at the Uniformed Services University, and Dr. John McClellan, BTK Founder and Critical Care Fellow at the University of Washington in Seattle. Okay, um, so we're going to get started today uh, with a real case from a few months ago. Patrick and Matt, I want you guys to kind of walk through this. So you're managing a patient in the ICU. He's an otherwise healthy 65-year-old male, uh, presented a septic shock with peritonitis and free air on an x-ray initially when he came in. Your partner took him to the OR emergently for an X-lap. He revealed fecal contamination throughout the abdomen uh, with severe sigmoid diverticulitis and a noticeable perforation. The patient at that time was acidotic. He was on pressures, uh, getting some blood, uh, and then due to um, the how ill the patient was, the Hartman's procedure was performed. Of note, uh, the intubation at the time was also complicated by uh, frank aspiration. For the next few days, the patient remained on high-dose vasopressors uh, and uh, would continue to be resuscitated. He is now, now post-op day one, uh, and he's Currently intubated and sedated with fentanyl and propofol. He's requiring norepinephrine and vasopressin drips to maintain a map grader in 65. Uh, he has an AKI, uh, he's anuric, and he's treated with broad spectrum antibiotics. So it's playing out that this guy's pretty sick. Now let's start off. So in the middle of the night, you get a phone call from the patient's nurse. Uh, the patient drew an ABG and reports the following. Uh, pH is 7.2. 56, 58, with an oxygen saturation 88% on 80% FiO2. With chest x-ray shows bilateral fluffy infiltrates. Somehow you're able to get an echo in the middle of the night, and it showed a hyperdamic heart with no abnormalities uh, and get preserved ejection fracture. What's going on here? Matt. Sounds like a great case. So so sounds like on top of uh, clear septic shock, you, you now have a patient 
going into ARDS and, and very early ARDS. Yeah, yeah. ARDS is defined by the Berlin criteria. There's four criteria to number one, uh, respiratory symptoms within one week of a known clinical insult. Number two, bilateral opacities consistent with pulmonary edema. Number three, uh, findings that cannot be fully explained by cardiac failure or fluid overload. And number four, moderate to severe impairment of oxygenation. Yeah, and, and it's nice that the Berlin criteria now divided up into you know three categories of mild, moderate, and severe based on the P to F ratio. Um, so a P to F uh, of less 200 to 300 would be mild. 100, 200 would be moderate, and less than 100 is severe. And, and it got rid of the old acute lung injury terminology from the uh, prior definitions that, that I think confused a lot of people. And so now it's just it's just ARDS, mild, moderate, severe. Right. So, so John, you mentioned a gas of pH of 7.2, a CO2 of 56, and a PaO2 of 58. What are, what are the vent settings that the patient's on? Yeah, so he's on uh, assist control with a respiratory rate of 20. Uh, tidal volumes are currently occurring at 470, 470 cc's. That PEEP is at 8. FiO2 is 80%. Uh, so just a quick calculation here. So his P to F ratio is 72. So his calculated at a severe ARDS. Right. So, so there is a playbook for this, and this is the purpose we're talking about this case. There is a playbook for managing ARDS. Um, and there's a stepwise approach that you can use uh, when you get called, for instance, in the middle of the night for these patients. And you don't have to be an intensivist. You don't have to be uh, a terribly savvy at managing ventilators because, again, there's, there's data that walks us through this. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the first buzzword everybody always comes up with or buzz phrase is lung protective ventilation um, and, and avoiding barotrauma and volume trauma, which will make you worse. Um, treating the patient uh, if they're dysynchronous with the ventilator. And, and sometimes that can be the prime cause of your ADS and just getting them to sync better with the vent will markedly improve them. And then we can get into things like proning, chemical paralysis, uh, considering steroids. Uh, in, in this case, you would potentially be considering them both for septic shock and ARDS. Uh, different vent modes like APRV, uh, inhaled nitric oxide, uh, and then, you know, the, the, the big daddy of them all uh, going to ECMO. Right. So you mentioned lung protective ventilation. Are we on lung protective ventilation with this patient, John, based on their, their uh, uh, sex and height? Yeah. So luckily you have a very astute critical care physician recognize this problem very early and place the patient on lung protective ventilation. But right. because you asked, I mean, what, I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but more, what about, what's more about lung protective ventilation? Why is it important to these patients? Right. So lung protective ventilation originated from the ARDS uh, ARDSnet trials, and it's defined by relatively lower tidal volumes and plateau pressures. And it is really the only thing that you can do with a ventilator that has been shown uh, through randomized data to decrease mortality and time on the ventilator. Yeah. And I think that's worth repeating. Um, lower tidal volumes and plateau pressures uh, are associated with decreased mortality. Um, that was the big ARDSnet trial, uh, randomized patient to uh, you know kind of a standard approach, which would be around 10 cc's per kilogram tidal volumes to a low tidal volume approach uh, with a goal of four to six cc's per kilogram, uh, and that's predicted body weight. And obviously, with the you know the growing rates of obesity, uh, you have to remember that's predicted, not actual body weight. Um, and then you want to make sure your plateau pressures uh, are as low as possible. And uh, particularly, you want to keep them less than 30. Uh, and, and that's determined by performing an inspiratory hold. Uh, although you can follow your peak inspiratory pressures because uh, your plateaus will always be lower 
you know, so if your peaks are lower than 30, you automatically know your plateaus are lower than 30. Um, but, but the theory behind doing this is you avoid over distending the lung and repeated uh, complete opening and closing uh, and avoid doing additional injury to the lung. All right, so our patient uh, that I presented was a six foot male. Uh, that means uh, he's, uh, which means six cc's a kilogram predicted body weight is a tidal volume of 407 cc's, uh, which is exactly what he's getting. His plateau pressure, pressure is 30 on the dot. Okay, so, so I think we're, we're in a reasonably good place to start. Uh, although again, you know, we, we say plateau pressure less than 30. Uh, and right at 30, I, I wouldn't be as comfortable and I'd probably be shooting to try and get them lower because then, then you, you, know, you don't have a lot of room to move from that. Um, but you said his gas is uh, 7.2, 56, 58, and SATs are 80% on FIO2 of 80. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. So, so two things uh, come to mind is he's got an acidosis, a respiratory acidosis, uh, and also is, you know, having uh, pretty significant hypoxia and you're at, you're at 80% FiO2. So, you know, you're, you're getting up to the high end where you don't have a whole lot of room to move going up on your FiO2. And, and that's where I think you really want to start doing things that will improve your oxygenation uh, that aren't just dialing up the FiO2. So, uh, but one thing you could do is increase the respiratory rate uh, in an attempt to increase minute ventilation and blow off some of the CO2. Um, I would increase the PEEP, uh, and I would, I would probably start by going from 8 to 10 or 8 to 12. Yep, and that's exactly what was done with this patient off the bat. Um, his new gas was, you know, improved based on those adjustments that you made, but now his plateau pressures are starting to trend uh, over 30. Yeah, and, and that's probably from both increasing the PEEP and or his uh, lung compliance is acutely worsening. Uh, so I'm assuming this patient has pretty poor lung compliance. Yeah, compliance is pretty terrible. It was calculated at uh, around 30 uh, early on uh, in his hospital course. Yeah, remember that compliance is defined by the change in volume divided by the change in transpulmonary pressure. And so normal is around 100 mLs uh, per uh, centimeters of water. And so lung, low, uh, excuse me, lungs with low compliance are lungs that are stiffer and harder to work with. Yeah, and I think it's it's really important that you get a good sense of your compliance from the start, uh, because I think we have seen there there are both low and normal compliance patients who are in ARDS, and you probably should treat those a little differently. Um, and, and you mentioned increasing the PEEP. Um, you do want enough PEEP to help keep the alveoli open and prevent them from collapsing and, and, and reopening with every breath. Uh, but not so high that you do additional damage to the lung. And, and as we're seeing with our increased plateau pressures here. Yeah. And, and there are a number of randomized control trials, a whole bunch of alphabet soup, uh, a three large ones, the, the love trial, alveoli trial and express trial are three trials that are worth looking into. If you're interested in vents and critical care, these three trials show no improvement in mortality with relatively higher peeps. And then another, uh, a larger trial, um, the ART trial, ART, showed that you actually had an increased mortality in patients managed with lung recruitment and titrated PEEP. There's a lot more to those studies, uh, but that's kind of a real high level look. So while PEEP is definitely necessary, we're really not sure exactly how much patients need and, and every patient is certainly different. And so uh, understanding certainly that compliance is important for really knowing where you're at with, with PEEP. Yeah, and I think we've we've definitely changed our approach to PEEP. I remember as a resident, 
uh, we would have patients on 20, 30, even 40 of PEEP sometime. Uh, and, and we got really aggressive uh, with PEEP. And I think we've, we've since learned that we were probably uh, hurting the patients rather than helping them with that. Uh, but, but I think probably the best thing to do is the ARDSnet uh, has their PEEP titration trial uh, or chart. And, and you can follow that and it bases the PEEP off of the FiO2 level that you have. And then I also think you should do something to assess your response to changes in the PEEP. Uh, so you shouldn't just dial up the PEEP or dial it down and, and not do anything to say, okay, is this change making the patient better or worse? Yeah. And what do you mean, and what do you mean by that, uh, uh, Dr. Martin? What would you measure? Or how would you tell, you know, what parameters you look <laughs> at when you dial the PEEP up? Yeah, that's well, well, obviously oxygenation and FiO2, I think is one, you know, if, if you're getting no benefit in your oxygenation, then you're probably not doing much by uh, increasing or decreasing the PEEP. Um, you, you, you do want to give them enough time though. What I see a lot is somebody will turn the peep up. They'll go eight to 10, 10 to 12. They'll watch the patient for 10 minutes and say, oh, their sats aren't better. And, and you really need to give them a good hour or two and start to see if you're having any improvements with recruitment. Um, I've seen a couple other ways of titrating peep that I think are reasonable. Um, when we were doing central lines a lot more for sepsis, uh, there, there were some systems of titrating peep to the central venous oxygenation level, and you would we would titrate the PEEP, uh, and as we saw improvements on that, and then the point where we didn't get a further improvement in central venous oxygen, we would stop uh, bumping the PEEP up, uh, and and then there are other there are other methods that base that on the compliance of the lung, and now none of those has any randomized data saying that's an ideal way to do it. Right, right. And so I think if you're also interested in this kind of stuff, especially when you start going down that rabbit hole that is PEEP, it's really worth looking up driving pressure. We're not going to cover that today. I think that's a really fascinating concept. It's undergoing farther research. Uh, but again, driving pressure, if you're interested in looking more into that, please do so. And, and just to define driving pressure for some people who haven't heard of it. So, so uh, your driving pressure is, is your plateau pressure minus your PEEP. Uh, and, and, and so it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like shock index, right. That we've gone to for trauma. That's a little better than just isolated blood pressure or heart rate. Um, but it really takes your, the interaction between your lung pressures, your PEEP and your compliance into account. Excellent. Okay. Going back to our patient here. Uh, so he's now chilled out for about 24 hours without any major changes. Uh, but then all of a sudden, uh, you're just sitting down to get lunch and a code was called. Uh, the patient is in PEA arrest. What do you do now? Yeah, so start ACLS. Um, and at this point, think about your H's and your T's, back to the basics. So hypovolemia, hypoxia, hydrogen ions, hyper, hypokalemia, hypoglycemia, hypothermia. And the T's, toxins, tamponade, tension, pneumothorax, thrombosis, cardiac thrombosis, or PE, and trauma. Good. So you go through all your H's and T's, so, but you've done about two minutes of CPR now. You've administered some epinephrine. The patient remains pulseless with an oxygen saturation in the 60s. Uh, someone luckily had an ultrasound nearby, uh, threw it on his chest, and you can see the heart, you know, squeezing what, uh, pretty well. Uh, but it was pretty puny and definitely on the emptier side. He's getting bagged, and it's pretty hard to move the air. Yeah, so the question is, we're talking about ARDS here, poor compliance, high vent pressures. Does the patient have a tension pneumothorax would come to mind? Yeah, and that's exactly what he did. If you're pretty... Uh, good with your ultrasound at the same time looking at the heart you could have looked at the lungs uh, but luckily a chest tube was placed uh, pretty rapidly and a rush of air came out and return of spontaneous circulation was obtained so it was, uh, it was great to get him back uh, but after this his pulmonary status uh, really really went south 
white out lungs, super poor compliance, and ongoing issues with oxygenation. Matt, what's next in the playbook? Yeah, and, and one thing too, I would point out when the patient goes into a rest and, and even before that, you know, when he's in septic shock is the, the other thing to always think of, this is a post-op patient. And, and I always think of a problem with what I just did. So don't forget about, you know, post-operative bleeding uh, or, you know, ongoing abdominal sepsis that's driving this. And, and sometimes you're really trying to sort out, is this just sepsis and ARDS or do I have to take the patient back to the OR? And, and you're faced with two bad choices. So, so, so don't forget about those as potential uh, causes. But, but now you've got a patient who they, they were already pretty south and now they've gone further south. Um, so what do you do next? So we, we've done the, our low tidal volume ventilation. Uh, we're at four to six cc's per kilogram. Um, we, we do want to make sure they're, you know, pH, if they start to get below 7.2, um, you can either increase your minute ventilation or start some bicarb. Um, but I think the big things I would do here were I would assess for if there's any ventilator dyssynchrony. Uh, and, and I would probably just go ahead and paralyze the patient, especially when you have an acute event like that. Uh, and, and you don't need to put them on a drip, but I would give them, you know, at least one dose of paralytic and kind of get control of everything to where you take the patient out of the equation. Um, I'd make sure they ha they're adequately sedated. And then uh, I'd go to the bedside and look at the vent and not just look at the settings, look at the vent tracings. Um, uh, you could uh, increase the uh, inspiratory time. You could change to a spontaneous breathing mode, or you could go to something like APRV. Yeah, it looks like, uh, you know, you tried all those other things. It's a stepwise approach. And unfortunately, all that doesn't really help. Uh, and then you, you move to your prone positioning and paralysis. Can you Let's talk about that some more. What, what's some of the trials that we have to demonstrate the benefit of this? Yeah, sure. And uh, yeah, and proning, proning would follow paralysis, at least in my algorithm. It's, it's relatively resource intensive and, and it's a little bit dangerous for the patient. But, but proning is one thing that in almost all patients will improve their oxygenation and their P to F ratio because it will improve uh, VQ mismatch. Um, so, so starting with proning, uh, there were several earlier trials that, that we kind of dialed in over a decade, looking at proning with some conflicting results, and that, that led into the large randomized PROCEVA trial um, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, this showed a clear mortality benefit for ARDS patients who were treated with proning. Uh, the, the caveat is that they were treated with relatively prolonged proning. So uh, their protocol was 16 hours per day if they tolerate it. Uh, and this will help redistribute blood flow and airflow more evenly, especially in patients who are just lying supine and you never move them around much. Yeah, I think it's important to know, too, that proning is definitely a team effort. Uh, Dr. Martin, you mentioned this. Uh, this requires an ICU team with some experience in this area. Um, they got to flip the patient over. They have to manage a patient then that's on their belly as opposed to on their back. And, you know, that's not something to take lightly. Yeah. And obviously, I think most hospitals are now expert at, at this because of the COVID pandemic. But uh, the, the best way to do this is to have a proning team and have a checklist that you go through every time you prone. Uh, and, and that's really critical for that. And then I think you also need to consider paralysis. Um, and, and remember that, you know, paralysis is a, a mixed bag. It definitely has its pros, but it also has cons in terms of the patient's outcome and prolonged ICU weakness. Uh, and, and now, unfortunately, we have kind of conflicting data from two relatively well done randomized trials. So we have, we have an earlier randomized trial, the Accuracist trial, that was a multi-center trial in Europe. And, and they found a pretty clear improvement in mortality 
with paralysis, 48 hours of uh, cisatricurum. Uh, and then another more recent study in the US, the ROSE trial, uh, actually found no different. Uh, in both studies, again, as I said, patients were paralyzed with uh, cisatricurium for 48 hours. And, and the idea being one, that you, you again, take the patient out of the equation and, and optimize your ventilator sync synchrony and, and help decrease the oxygen demand. Um, I, I think there's probably also some other benefits of paralysis. There have been a couple of studies that show it decreases your inflammatory response. It decreases inflammatory molecules in BAL fluid. Uh, and, and it probably also helps with your driving pressures that you mentioned earlier. Uh, but, but again, unfortunately, we now have one randomized trial that says it has a benefit, one randomized trial that says it didn't have a benefit. I, I still, again, with a patient who's in this condition, I would not hesitate. I would paralyze them and I would just see what effect that has on their oxygenation. Exactly. That was a great review of proning and paralysis. So we did both those things in our patients. Uh, we first paralyzed the patient, but that didn't help. And then we proned him just like Dr. Martin mentioned. Uh, this, uh, the proning uh, helped about 24 hours of improved oxygenation, but then shortly after he worsened this. The typical course of people with severe ARDS. Um, we are now post-surgery day five. He has still bilateral pulmonary infiltrates that still are becoming worse and whited out. He's very poor compliance. In ABG, it reads 7.2, uh, 64, and 50. And he's on pressure control ventilation with tidal volumes at 8 cc's, but plateau pressures in the high 40s. Right. So, so getting worse, uh, certainly. And you know, other considerations we mentioned at the top of the episode could be steroids, uh, which if used early may improve mortality in APRV patients. I say may, um, uh, but it's never been definitively shown to do this. Um, but uh, we also probably, as Dr. Martin mentioned, should be on steroids for septic shock in this patient. We mentioned he was on norepinephrine and vasopressin. Uh, we could consider APRV. Again, this has never been definitively shown to improve outcomes, uh, although it may improve oxygenation and may improve patient comfort. Uh, it also takes some doing in terms of manipulating the vent to understand exactly how to set up APRV and do it correctly to get those benefits. And then last, uh, nitric oxide can be considered. And this will almost universally improve your oxygenation, uh, but has not been shown to improve outcomes as well. Yep, so that's right. Uh, so in the beginning, we placed the patient on hydrocortisone, 50 milligrams every six hours, uh, early on for the septic shock uh, due to he was requiring multiple vasopressors. Uh, we tried APRV, and that also seems to be hospital dependent, but in our hospital we do it, uh, but it didn't seem to do much of anything. We opted for the use of nitric oxide, which is also hospital dependent, uh, and raised the patient's PO2 uh, by about 10 points, but still we were struggling. Um, this guy, you know, before all this happened, was completely healthy, uh, and now he is at death's doorstep. Right. So re uh, real yeah. quickly, it's interesting you chose, and you chose hydrocortisone. Is, is, that, is that your standard steroid? For ARDS? I think it depends your, your, on hospitals and protocols. And I think some people have done dexamethasone as well. Um, and, uh, but uh, at uh, for this patient, hydrocortisone was chosen. Yeah. And there's, uh, you know, it's interesting that there is a randomized trial now of dexamethasone in ARDS that showed, a, again, a pretty clear mortality benefit. And, it, and it's interesting because it's one of those studies that you would think would have a big splash and it really didn't. And, and, I still can't figure out some studies, you know, get blasted all over the place and some get kind of overlooked. And this was a really good study. And along with the COVID data, you got to start wondering if there's something about dexamethasone that, that's just different than the standard hydrocortisone, which I think has been pretty widely shown to have little benefit. 
Right. So, so at least now I've gone to dexamethasone uh, for these patients. And an improvement specifically in patients with pulmonary problems secondary to pneumonia or even intra-abdominal sepsis specifically. So um, yeah, this guy's sick. We're, we're at the end of our rope now. We, we've moved down our algorithm. We've talked about the data. Uh, but John, hopefully before this, we've we've thought about ECMO at least, VV ECMO. You mentioned this guy was healthy before. That's really important to know that a functional individual got really, really sick. Uh, but when it comes to ECMO too, nice to have them on, on board early, following yeah. along with you and evaluating the patient. Absolutely. Yeah. These, uh, anytime a patient's PDF begins to start downtrending, uh, you know, below 150, the ECMO team should be involved. Uh, and uh, they were reconsulted after this, uh, this clinical deterioration and they were willing to put them on ECMO. Um, so I guess the biggest question is how did they make that decision? How do they know if this patient's appropriate for ECMO? Well, it, and, and again, the indications for ECMO are gonna be very widely, I'd say between centers and providers and ECMO teams and capabilities. And, and unfortunately in many centers, it, it may not be a reality because um, there's limited uh, ECMO resources, again, especially now in the COVID era. Um, but, but the general indications for ECMO would be a patient like this, a, a patient who, you know, you've tried the standard vent maneuvers, um, you've paralyzed them, you're proning them, uh, and you are still either not gaining ground or losing ground. Uh, I think one of the keys is what you don't want to do, though, is wait too long and, and keep trying and you, know, you do days and days of this. And then, you know, as the patient's about to arrest, you then consult the ECMO team. So, so I think one of the messages with ECMO is, is go to ECMO early. Um, I would say most, most centers criteria would be a, a P to F ratio of less than a hundred. Uh, and, and that's what like the Aeolia trial used was a, a P to F of less than 80 or less than 50, depending how long they were at that. Um, you can also look at the oxygenation index uh, and there's a couple of scoring systems that can also be used. Probably the Murray score is one of the more common ones. Yeah, and we, and we have, uh, th this is a tough spot to be in. We don't really know who, who should go in ECMO and when. And so you probably have three groups of patients, right? You have one group of patients uh, who are going to do poorly with ECMO or without ECMO. You have another group of patients that are going to do well with ECMO or without ECMO. And so your job is to try to find that middle group that'll do better with ECMO, do worse without it, and then try to find the right time to put them on. And there's no answer to that uh, so far. That's a very, very tough question. And we, we have uh, about a year ago put out a three-part series on ECMO that dives into the indications in a whole lot more detail as well. So if you're interested in tuning into that. Yeah, I think another way to approach these ECMO patients, um, and this is coming from the COVID you know, past couple of years, um, is a, a group decisions on how to approach these ECMO patients. So it's not just a single provider deciding, oh, I'm gonna cannulate this person. Group discussions have really been helpful and kind of walking through the patients and deciding um, who needs these advanced you know, oxygenation techniques. Uh, the one other thing we can calculate is a RESP score, which is a respiratory ECMO survival prediction. Um, there's a lot of different scoring systems for ECMO, but this predicts the survival of patients going on ECMO. Um, this patient, if you calculate it out, his rest score is actually zero, which corresponds to about a 50% in hospital survival. Um, but, you know, we had talked about this is the question is ECMO is really superior to high level standard ICU care. Do we know that answer? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, one of the great debate topics at, at all the trauma meetings. Um, we, we have a couple studies that, you know, can guide us. Uh, the, the biggest ones were the CSER randomized trial, and that was an older trial. 
um, that randomize patients who are in refractory ARDS. And, and, it's, and it's, often, it's often discussed as they were randomized to ECMO versus no ECMO. They were actually randomized to transfer to an ECMO center versus standard of care at the current center they were at if they weren't at an ECMO center. And, and they showed improved survival in the patients randomized to the intervention arm. But the big question that was left with that trial was, was it just referral to a high level pulmonary center or was it the receipt of ECMO? Um, there was actually a systematic review and meta-analysis of, of three trials, Caesar and two others, um, that looked at that question and they pulled out patients who got ECMO, not just ones who were transferred. And they showed a survival benefit was associated with the receipt of ECMO. Um, but then the, the, the biggest and most relevant study and most recent is the uh, EOLIA trial uh, that came out. And unfortunately, this one's probably generated even more controversy uh, or generated more questions that's, that it's answered. And, and this randomized patients to standard of care uh, or ECMO, um, but it also allowed crossover from the standard of care to ECMO. And, and the issues with this trial are they, they had they really had two big endpoints. One was a composite of death or crossover, and that composite uh, showed a clear superiority of ECMO. Uh, the crossover rate was like 33% right. in the conventional group. Uh, and then they had their, their isolated 60-day mortality outcome, and that did not show a statistically significant difference, but the, the P was you know, 0. 0.07 to 0.09. So, you know, almost achieved significance and the trial was stopped early. And, and in fact, that decision was also criticized even by the New England Journal of Medicine Board. Um, my reading of that trial is that, that it's pretty strong evidence that there was a benefit of ECMO and, and it really turned into an early ECMO versus late ECMO study because of all the crossovers from the, the conventional arm. Um, so, so, you know, again, if it were me or my family, and, and I would say, you know, get them on ECMO as soon as possible. Yeah, thank you. I think that's an excellent review of those two studies. Um, well, luckily, uh, they listened to you, and this patient was put on VV ECMO. Uh, he underwent a dual cannulation system with a right femoral vein uh, 25 French uh, drainage cannula and a right IJ with a 21 French return cannula. Uh, with this configuration, the patient's body size got flows around 5 liters a minute. The patient was also put on rest settings, uh, which is typical for ECMO patients, with on the ventilator with uh, inspiratory pressure of 10, PIPA 10, uh, respiratory of 5, uh, 5 to 10, and FiO2 of 40%. All right. With that, do we have a, a happy ending for this one? Yeah, of course, we're skipping a very large portion of this patient's, this patient's hospital course, but the patient actually did very well overall. His ECMO run was pretty uneventful, and he was able to be decannulated after about five days on the circuit. Uh, he went on to make a full recovery, uh, and now he's back, uh, hang out with the kids and family and exercising regularly. Right. So, so that's pretty amazing. Again, this is actually a, a real case, right? This is a, we pulled these real cases for the clinical challenges and surgery and, uh, kudos to all the folks who participated in this unnamed patient's care. So good surgical critical care saves lives. That's a real thing. Uh, this patient's life was saved. He would have died without aggressive care. And so never forget that. So all those who toil in the ICU day in and day out, be very proud of what you do. All those uh, days where you don't think you're making progress and all the little tweaks to numbers and the next set of labs and this and that, they all matter. They all matter for a patient like this who is now with his, with his kids. Uh, so it's great to hear. I want to uh, thank uh, Dr. Matt Martin and Dr. John McClellan for joining us today. Until next time, dominate the day.